0: Which archetype is more prone to burnout, you think, and why from your experience from coaching multiple tens of executives?
1: The group like me, so the group that were, you know, didn't always feel good about themselves and didn't have a strong sense of self. I think how we apply our strengths in our roles are really important regards. Burnout's complex, there are so many factors too. Hi, I'm Rebecca Christensen, founder and director of Thriving People Consulting. I'm an executive coach, leadership facilitator and speaker. And I'm really energized by stretching leaders to the edge of their thinking and supporting mindset shifts. In the rush to the top, which happens, people are, you know, they're heading upwards. I was a bit like that. I was like, what's the next step? What's the next job? You sometimes lose sight of what energizes you. The coaching work I do, which is just really helping senior people understand what energizes you. you know, naturally, what types of thinking and, and activities do you do that really resonate that are really easy to do they're innate right that you can just do without thinking it's always just wanting to prove myself and you know but there's a lot of kind of anxiety and it's based on fear you know fear not fear of not being good enough in your role and it becomes really consuming and you get caught in your head a lot so these are unhelpful ways of thinking it's like kind of unhelpful coding in our brain and they're often based on the way we were raised as kids today in the podcast we discussed a range of topics we spoke a lot about life at the top of business, what it's like for executives. I shared some of my own experiences as well and also some trends that I noticed in a lot of my executive coaching clients. I really hope that you enjoy listening to it. We've got a few hints and tips to to help you if you're an aspiring senior leader.
2: Before we get to this episode, Amin and I had two massive favours to ask. We started this podcast on our passion to connect with interesting people with fascinating stories and sharing those stories with everyone so we can all learn from them.
0: Now, what's truly fueling our growth and to help us share more stories, with some very interesting people. One is our passion of storytelling and really wanting to hear people's stories because we generally believe in the power of sharing real human stories, but also your word of mouth and sharing with your family and friends is just as powerful help us have more reach to people out there. So please do share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it.
2: Currently, only a third of you that are listening to us are have followed us on any whatever platform that you are uh, accessing to our podcast. So we would love to see more of you joining that cohort. So please follow us on whatever platform you're hearing this message on.
0: For now, let's get into the episode.
2: Rebecca. Hi. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. Mm-hmm
2: is a pleasure let's start with the early days shall we when you think of your childhood what is one memory that comes to your mind that had a significant impact on who rebecca is today
1: that's a great question i think i think for me i have two memories is that okay to share of course (laughs) One of the first memories I have from my childhood is doing a lot of travel. So we were, um, I was born in the UK and we were, we emigrated to Australia in the 80s and um, we had family in the UK and then my parents split up and then I, my, my dad moved around a bit. So I was just traveling a lot as a kid. So I have all these memories of visiting family and friends, you know, around the country and overseas. So yeah, that's a really strong memory for me as being exposed to different ways of living and I I think I learned there as a kid that there are so many ways to live a life. You know, there's not just one way of living, and that really stuck with me because I think it built this level of empathy and respect for difference. Um, So it's not a specific memory, but it's like a lot of memories of just having so much fun, being on planes. And in the '80s, you know, you could still smoke, you know, on planes, and yeah, like the thing was terrible.
0: (laughs) Did you have these telephone planes? Did you guys ever come across these?
1: I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just remember the smoking. (laughs) (laughs) Being awful. Um, And the second memory I have is listening to a lot of positive psychologists. So before my my parents were quite spiritual and they were into positive psychology. So they're a bit hippie. In the 80s, you like, when I was a kid, it wasn't popular like it is now. They were like a bit hippie. So my, the soundtrack to my childhood is listening to Dr. Wayne Dyer, Marianne Williamson, like Buddhism. And so that really instilled in me the importance of mindset um, and that we all have the agency to change our life in the way that we want to. And I think that really grew my interest in psychology, um, which I think is why I then went to, to study that. But um, my parents had like literally cassette tapes that we would like listen to on repeat. That was just in the background all the time. Um, so that, that was really, really cool way to grow up. Just believing anything's possible.
2: Tell us a bit more about that mindset and what you've learned in those earlier days, how, 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 how young were you when you were exposed to these tapes?
1: Um, Well, probably from the age of five or six. So my parents got divorced when I was, when I was about five, um, and. Mum used to play like a lot of these cassettes in the background. We used to say affirmations as kids um, before we went to bed. Wow. Which was, you know, this. she was, you know, my mum was quite progressive and then she met her new partner who was my stepdad and, you know, he became like a dad to me. And they just instilled this belief that we can achieve anything we want through um, hard work. And, yeah, I think that just instilled in me this really good work ethic and tenacity. And then this just confidence in myself, just this ability that, you know, I've got some, a lot of value I can add. Um, And yeah, I, I think we just were taught to try different strategies and if something's not working, try something else. So it was like these, they sound really basic, but it was a way of making sure you never get too stuck in life. Amazing. Yeah.
0: So you grew up you're saying in the 80s earlier, which I think is the era of spiritual awakening. I think there was a lot happening around that time. Is that right?
1: It was starting, yeah. It still wasn't mainstream. Like health food shops, you know, my mum would go into a health food shop and that was like where's where hippies went. So whereas now it's it's just, you know, they're everywhere, aren't they now? So, yeah, it was starting. We're starting. But I was the odd one out. You know, no one's parents were divorced. Like I'd be in a class and we one of one or two kids whose parents were divorced. So yeah, it was a different time. Makes me sound old, but you know, it was different.
2: <laughs> it's the era of, uh, Steve Jobs, I'm reading his biography right now and he yeah. was a bit of a hippie himself, yeah. Steve Jobs, and he had all this, um, ex- experimented with all these different things that were popping over in the eighties. Yeah. From what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, so that's his childhood and then what happened after once? Or, uh, I'm assuming you went to school in all these different countries that you traveled. Did you travel to live or travel to just visit?
1: Oh, So I yeah. went to school in the UK and Australia. Yeah. Um, but then we settled back in Australia. So so we were um, ping pong poms. So that's what they call English people that can't decide where to live. They're kind of a ping and they pong between countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I love school. I was a smart kid. I was quite lucky and I did well academically. I had lots of friends. Um went to uni, uh, I did interior architecture, um, and learned that wasn't for me. There's a lot of really fabulous, talented people in that space. And it wasn't me. And then I moved to psychology and I found like, I went, it was like going home, you know, because I grew up listening to all these positive psychologists that it was just, this was it, like, this was, this was what I was going to do in life. Um, yeah. And
2: And what is it that you do now?
1: So now I'm an executive coach, I'm a leadership facilitator and a management consultant and a speaker, but it's mainly all in the leadership space. Um, and I had a corporate life before, and I was a people and culture executive. So psych, the psych background kind of lends itself really well in that space.
2: And what do you think Why you do is, what do you think what you do is important at the moment?
1: I think, I think that being at the top of business is hard. It's stressful. And it's really lonely, it's competitive, and not everyone has empathy for senior people because they think, oh, they get paid a lot of money, you know, they get paid to deal with the stress and pressure. Um, But actually it can be, you know, I found it quite a lonely place, particularly as a younger woman in quite big roles, and it's hard to know who to trust, and you're constantly pushing yourself to be better, you know, so you can deliver more and... Um, you know, you want to get good performance ratings and, um, you know, people are very externally focused around outcomes.
2: Mm. I've heard that phrase used many times. It's for the people that get paid more to deal with this stress mm. so many times. Yeah. So I can relate to that. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I want to take a step back to your travels when you're a kid. Yeah. Because I can see a bit of a pattern there. So you used to travel quite a bit and you almost got maybe attached to that idea of differences. Mm -hmm. And then you worked in people in culture. Mm -hmm. How did you find that, I guess, space here in Australia versus in the UK, let's say with your schooling between the UK and Australia?
1: So when I was little at school, well, I guess in... In the UK when I went to school, it wasn't for huge periods of time because we kept on moving countries a few times. Um, I guess I was, like, I was someone who was special because I had an Aussie accent, so I kind of stood out a lot and kids wanted to play with me because I was the one that had, like, the funny accent, and, you know. The I- English really look up to, um, like, they love Australians, so I felt like I was a bit of the f- flavour of the months, you know, when I was, like, there, so... <laughs> um, were there big differences you know they they look after their kids really well they're like they they feed kids there you know so kids get paid lunches and used to get like milks and books and like i remember you know it was a it was a good space to be in the uk um but you know the challenges i found was you know you notice the class system really clearly even as a kid like you just notice things that are different. So, Back in Australia, this is again in the 80s, I feel like there was just much more acceptance again. You know, it didn't matter where you came from and, um, yeah, I think they're probably the things that that stand out the most. Um, but, yeah, I wasn't in, you know, school in the UK for years and years. It was mainly back in Australia, but there were a few, a few times when we went back to live. So, yeah.
0: Would you go back and live in the UK now?
1: Um Probably not. I did that in my 30s. I went back for just almost six years and it was awesome. Springboarded my career big time. Got me really hungry, (laughs) hungry to be, you know, at the top of an organisation. But I found the weather really hard, to be honest. (laughs) I love the sun. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe, maybe in the future. I do have a lot of UK coaching clients and um, I'm launching a, group coaching program for senior women in the uk later in the year so i do a lot of work over there like i love it but maybe but not for now i kind of did my bit a few years ago that was great
2: <laughs> it's back to what you do now these days what type what type of people do you see that kind of make it to those executive level what kind of what are the common traits Define kind of common common mindset common beliefs that they have yeah. that allows them to get there.
1: yeah I think there are two. There are two groups of people. This is kind of a very crude summary, but there are two cohorts of people that I think work at the top in business. There's people like me, where I didn't always feel good about myself, and I kind of, you know, my, even though I had this beautiful childhood where I was raised to have confidence in myself, I still had this, you know, level of self doubt at times, and that always felt like I wanted to prove myself and that drove me. And there's a group of people like that. And I coach a lot of senior people like that who have what we call low self-efficacy, or they don't have a strong sense of self. Um, They're people pleasers. So they work really hard, but they're not good at setting boundaries. And the corporate world rewards this because if you don't have boundaries at work, you work really hard, right? You deliver. You usually go over and above. And so These unhelpful patterns, you know, of overwork, burnout or overcompensating behaviours, you get your bonus for doing that, you know, because you end up delivering a lot. So there's that group of people and they're, like me, prone to burnout um, or getting a bit disillusioned because they're just giving so much of themselves to their job and they're not good at defining themselves outside of work. So they can't always define their identity outside of work. So for a long time, I was my job. You know, I felt good about myself because of my job and my seniority. Um, so that's kind of one group. And then you've got another group of people, again, this is oversimplification, but who do, you know, do have a strong sense of self. So they have a lot more self-belief um, and they're perhaps a little bit more, you know, a bit more ruthless in the way that they um, navigate how they move up the food chain and they have a lot of um, because of, they have a stronger sense of self, they tend to be more, um, you know, they're better at dealing with conflict, they set better boundaries, you know, that they just, you know, in the extreme, you know, we, we see more narcissism at the top than what we do in the general population. So, um, you know, we do see there's narcissistic personality disorder, and then there's narcissistic kind of personality style. And so we see more of the personality style at play where people are, um, you know, just wanting to focus on, well, what can you do for me? So they almost see people a bit like a resource that they can kind of use and navigate to um, help achieve what they want to achieve. You know, and again, they're very achievement orientated too, but what drives them is something different. Um, And they're the ones that we look at and we think, oh, you would never have a, t- a time when you feel insecure or you doubt yourself. But they do, you know, they do. But it's hidden a lot more deep. <laughs> it's like hidden below the layers. Whereas people more like me, we probably it was a, um, at times, even though we hid it a lot, it was probably a bit more obvious, you know, that we were wanting to be approved and liked by our peers and our boss. Mm. Yeah?
2: That is so intriguing for me in a lot of different ways. I'm trying to understand the psychology behind it. So we have two different types of people that make it to the executable. One is that are, who are insecure, hence chasing approval or self-validation by trying to moving up the chain. And then you have the other group who are confident or have that self-belief and they why do those people want to move up the chain? What's the psychology? What's the reasoning behind their thinking? If someone has a self-belief, what would they want to keep growing and, and kind of move up the chain? You get your, I have an answer in my mind, but can, really keen can, to can get to your thoughts on that.
1: I think, I mean, I think everyone's why is slightly different. So, um, hmm. what, what drives people can be different, but and I think they get a lot of enjoyment and energy still from the external accomplishments, um, yeah, of course. you know, j- just like the other group do too. But it, it plays out in a, it just it plays out in a different way, I think, because they they still might at times feel not good enough, but they almost just don't allow some of those feelings to really drive their behaviour. Um, and they're able to probably manage some of their unhelpful thinking patterns maybe a bit better. Um because you know for me like i was driven a lot by high functioning by high functioning anxiety so you know i was always a bit worried about not being good enough and people probably would have never noticed that when they met me when i was in senior or exec roles um, it's always just wanting to prove myself and you know but there's a lot of kind of anxiety and it's based on fear you know fear not fear of not being good enough in your role and um I think that it becomes really consuming and you get caught in your head a lot. And there are like there are 10 different cognitive um, thinking patterns or we call them cognitive distortions in the non-clinical population. So these are unhelpful ways of thinking. It's like kind of unhelpful coding in our brain and they're often based on the way we were raised as kids. And we all have them, right? Both groups have them. But I think, you know, there are a group of people who are more sensitive, like me, I was more sensitive, who are more prone to rumination and self-criticism. And if you're not careful, you can get locked in your head a lot, which leads to insomnia, you know, over-questioning yourself. So when you you doubt what you want to say, you kind of shrink, you censor. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting how these differences play out in the workplace.
0: I have a question about burnout. You mentioned burnout, and I've actually recently heard a very interesting articulation of burnout. I won't share it yet. Which group, let's simplify it and say these two schools of thought or two approaches or two types of, you know, um, executives or maybe call them archetypes, if that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Which archetype is more prone to burnout? You think, and why, from your experience, from coaching, yeah, multiple tens of executives, the
1: group like me, so the group that were, you know, didn't always feel good about themselves and didn't have a strong sense of self, and that's because this group um, were more driven by what other people thought of them, you know, they want to meet other people's expectations, they want approval, they want to be liked, which means they don't set good boundaries. They say yes, they're the doers,
0: because they're pleasing people all the yeah. time.
1: Yeah, yeah and they might not like I didn't always fear conflict I could all I could lean into difficult conversations but there still was a propensity in me just to say yes I'll take that project I'll look after that team now you know I'll take that on even though it's not much time for my team to deliver it you know I would just say I was you know I was the yes girl a lot and these people say yes a lot and they, again, because they're feared of not being seen as good enough and because they don't set boundaries, because they work too much and then because they get kind of locked in their head with rumination, which can lead to insomnia, you know, that's all of that's a recipe for burnout. And if you keep on pushing yourself for long periods of time and not taking a break, um, your body tells you. Yeah. I wonder
0: if the confident group is really aware of situations where you don't have much control. And the recent definition I heard was you burn out not because of how much work you do, it's because of the type of work you do. And if the environment or the work you do has high expectations but low control, it doesn't matter how little you will burn out. And I'm just curious whether there's a correlation there with the confident archetype. They're slightly more self-aware in situations where they don't have much control whether they will consciously, you know, almost try carefully not to get overly involved and maybe stick to the environment where there is high expectation, which is always the case for any executive, but maybe focus on the areas
1: where you have high control. Yes. Yeah. I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. I think that they're probably, if I can think about some of my peers in the past, they're just much better at like grabbing opportunities that they want to do, that they enjoy, the work that they enjoy doing or um, taking over projects from other peers, you know, because they can see that they'll get, um, they might get the Cs, you know, ear in this way or they can see it's a political project but the um, positive implications are really high. So they could get a lot of accolades from that. So, yeah, I I think that's true. Um, And I guess building on your point, The people can often get burnt out if they're not doing work that energises them and if they're not using their strengths. And so, you know, I take a strengths-based approach in the coaching work I do, which is just really helping senior people understand what energises you, you know, naturally what types of thinking and, and activities do you do that really resonate, that are really easy to do, they're innate, right, that you can just do without thinking. And the more you do of that in your day, the less energy it takes to do so the less likely you are to burn out. And what I find is in the rush to the top, which happens, people are, you know, they're heading upwards. I was a bit like that. I was like, what's the next step? What's the next job? You sometimes lose sight of what energises you. And so I work with people who are burnt out or just really deeply unhappy in their in their roles. And when we do a strengths assessment and we kind of compare how much they use their strengths in their role, often you know, they're, they're using very limited amount anymore. And, and part of that's because the level that you operate at the top changes, you know, like you're not doing the doing, you're all in the strategy and the influencing space and that doesn't energise everyone, right? And Particularly very technical people who might move up the chain, you know, they don't enjoy coaching people or developing maybe as much or they, they just find it harder. It's not natural for them. So it takes more energy and effort. Um, so I think how we apply our strengths in our roles are really important regardless of level and that, that can, um, yeah, that can really influence with uh, a burnout. But burnout's complex. There are so many factors to
0: how it happens. Then there's a cultural component as well. Yeah. yeah depending definitely. where you're at and what country and what's the work expectations.
1: Yeah, if you feel like there's a good match with you and the organisational culture. So some people, some senior people I coach, um, you know, there's there might be a mismatch between the what's expected in the executive team or the senior leadership team versus how their values really drive their behaviour. And if there's a mismatch, it's a bit like um, riding against the current. Mm-hmm. You always feel like you're swimming against the tide, you know, it feels really hard. I felt like that in, in a few roles. Mm. It's tiring. <laughs> Can imagine mm.
2: what are, what are you said, burnt out, burnout is one of the, one of the things you, it's very common. What are the, some other common challenges that the execs face?
1: Yeah. So I typically coach senior leaders and execs in three areas. So one is around burnout or those people that are really unhappy. So COVID has helped elicit a lot of thinking about how people want to contribute in their work. COVID's made a lot of senior people rethink kind of what they want to do with the rest of their life because it's been a very stressful time. I mean, for a lot of people through COVID, but particularly to keep organisations functioning, it's been really challenging. So that's kind of one group I work with. The second, another group that I work with, and I think this is a, a legitimate challenge, is senior people that are transitioning into a new role. So maybe you were A middle manager and you're transitioning to a senior leadership position or you're in a senior leadership position and you're transitioning to an executive role that's really stressful and um, you know requires people to let go of old ways of thinking and being to operate at the next level up and I do a lot of work in that space and what's required I think particularly for this group of people is to redefine how they interpret their sense of worth and how they add value because they're operating at a different level in the organization now and they can't keep on you know what made them successful to this point won't continue to make them successful so it's really hard to shed habits and ways of thinking and replacing them with new so that's another challenge that they face
2: quick one can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from what are the what are the common beliefs that they need to let go off when, once they enter that C-suite?
1: Yeah. So I think one is about, you know, I get my, I add my value from the detail and in the doing, um, you know, in the operational space, it can be really hard for senior people to let go of the, the day-to-day functioning of their team and particularly if you're a technical leader. So I work with a lot of people who might have engineering backgrounds or can, you know, they, they used to really love that work. And they might be led to believe that their way is the right way. So they interfere a bit with their teams. You know, they might not mean to micromanage, but they do. Um, So that's one of the things that that they can do that, that kind of, that doesn't help. So they need to let go of that and be comfortable in the strategic space. And for a lot of people, they don't know how to make that transition themselves. And so they do it with trial and error, or they just keep on doing a bit of what they did in their last job and a bit more in the new job and, and don't fully, it's like they've got their feet in two camps. They don't actually like jump into their new role. So yeah, they get themselves stuck.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think often executives, and I was having this chat with my colleague last week, actually, um, a lot of chief executives will come from a COO or a CFO background. And a CFO will obviously going to have that bias towards the investments and the numbers. And they'll easily cut down on people because they have been numbers people for a long time. And the operational people want to get bogged down with operations. Mm-hmm. And Simon Sinek talks a lot, I think, about that concept that if there is one title I would give a CEO, and I'm just quoting him here, it's Chief Vision Officer. Mm-hmm. And to go from a COO to a CEO, it's actually a big transition. It is. And- over half, more than half executives actually don't make the transition in their heads, yeah. they make making in the title. Yeah. Can you get your thoughts on that? Yeah. Do you think they could ever actually make it to become the visionary executive's officers, even with the training and the coaching? Do you think it's actually even possible?
1: I think that there needs to be a willingness to want to change and to see the value in changing. So if I work with senior people and they – don't think that they need to change then you know you, you can't you can't help them because there's not that curiosity about what else they could do so i think you know i've seen a lot of i've worked with a lot of ces and execs over over the years and i've definitely seen you know some people really struggle to make the transition and never quite never quite operate at that level at the visionary of you know being really focused on the future and external stakeholders and really navigating the environment around them to make big picture decisions Um, it's 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 a hard gig to do as well because you've got to take a punt and you often don't have all the information um so you're having to blend making evidence-based decisions with gut decisions and for some people if they've come from a technical background that's really hard to do because they want to see everything in writing you know all the um the detail before they make a call but the visionary piece I mean you have to see beyond the now don't you and that's hard
2: being an exec probably is the goal for a lot of people because it's quite glorified
1: mm-hmm. get get
2: to the all you're going to earn a lot of money what's it really like to be an exec and is it all worth it at the end of the day
1: it's a great question I used to love being in executive and senior leadership positions because I felt really passionate about leading a team and having the ability to have impact and influence across the organisation. And so for me, you know, I did enjoy being at the top. I wasn't always, I wasn't really driven by money and I wanted to earn a good living. But for me, I wanted to work in an organisation where I felt like I could make a difference and you can have an impact at the top. And that's what becomes a bit addictive because you have the ability to to make decisions that will help others, particularly I was in the people and culture space for a long time. So you can make significant decisions that impact the lives of your, you know, the employees. So I used to love that and um, I used to always like being really innovative and supporting my team. So I was often, you know, quite a few of my roles, I was given quite challenging teams who, you know, needed, um, needed some capability building and also cultural change. And I used to get a lot of internal satisfaction from taking people on a journey and supporting people, you know, promoting people and coaching them. So I loved that part. So yes, I think that part was definitely, definitely worth it. The stress and pressure, you know, it's hard to navigate at times. And you go through phases where everyone is, you know, you're coping pretty well with things and sometimes you don't and that's just normal. That's just a part of, you know, life at the top. But for me ultimately I was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 38 and I was in an exec role and, and that's actually what may, made me starting to start to think about what do I really want to do with my one wild and precious life? And even though I love these senior roles, is this what I want to do day to day now? Because it really makes you think about your mortality and you—you you, adversity forces you to face yourself. You know, it really does. And it becomes an opportunity to reset your life if you look at the situation in that way. And I think through my childhood, listening to all those positive, you know, psychologists and that, I felt like that was a breeding ground for me to then make some different decisions about, well, do I want this life anymore? And I thought, but I love it, but do I want to be in it? And that's when I decided, well, what are the best parts of my job? And the best parts of being a people and culture exec or head of was coaching other execs and senior leaders and the C. I I used to love coaching people and it was always one-to-one. I used to love developing strategy and I used to love facilitating leadership programs. And I thought, and all the rest of it, was, was challenging at times or went through phases where I loved it or I didn't enjoy it as much. It's a lot of operational stuff that happens in the in the HR space that's really important, um, but it can easily bog you down into the operational. And I thought, well, those three parts that I love doing, I could do that externally and I could set better boundaries around my health. So, yeah, for, the, for me, I decided, oh, this isn't for me anymore, but... I still want to be at the top, just not in it. Mm -mm.
2: Must have been quite confronting when you first found out that you were ill. Tell us a bit more about that. And And in hindsight, what did you learn about yourself?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's people ask me what it's like, and it's a bit like, I can remember when I got diagnosed and my partner came in and, and I i kind of knew with the doctor that something wasn't right because when I went to get a scan done, I could tell the um, technician, she looked really upset, like she was looking at the screen, looking at me, and she kept on saying, you need to see your doctor tomorrow, like you need to go. So then I knew, I just knew that I had it. But when the doctor actually told me, it's a bit like being in a bad dream, it just feels surreal. It's like... The, Yeah, it's bizarre. And then you go through treatment and you have to make decisions about surgery and and whatever else you need to do to stay well. Um, And I didn't take much time off work. So I did take time off for surgery and for some other treatments, but um, I was in an exec role and I felt really passionate about the work I was doing. And also I think work for me was a bit of an escape from what was happening, but I realised I couldn't escape from dealing with what was happening to me for a long time and what I learned about myself is what I already knew about myself but I just hadn't been able to activate some of the changes in my life and that was how do I set boundaries better with other people with my family friends at work how do I say no how do I be my authentic self without people please and when you have limited energy like you have to say no to things right you can't do everything you used to do when you're going through treatment and, and so it forced me to be really clear about what I wanted in my life and it was hard, so hard, but now I look back and I think, oh, that was the best thing that happened to me because I made the changes I'd tried to make in those areas in my life and I'd kind of tweaked around the edges but I'd never made the big-scale life changes.
2: Something I'm dealing with at the moment. Wow. How do you set boundaries with people that you love?
1: Mm, it's a good question.
0: Literally right in my mind, Ali. <laughs> Literally.
2: We're <laughs> after all.
1: I think it becomes really challenging because we are more emotionally triggered around our family and friends. So logically, it's easy to set boundaries at work because we're less emotionally involved. You know, we have less deeper relationships with people. So with family and friends, it's tricky. And they have expectations of us and how we should behave. And, and for me, I would often try to meet those expectations, you know. And for me, it's lots of little small changes. Sometimes it was telling someone how I felt about the impact of their behaviour Sometimes it was working out when and why their behaviour triggered me and how I could manage my own emotional reaction to that without projecting my issues onto them. So so there's terms like projection and transference and counter-transference. Have you you heard of those?
0: Not transference. Projection, yes, but not transference.
1: Yeah. Tell us more. These all come to play. So, So transference is when someone triggers us, so we, you know, we, feel emotional about angry, sad, or about something that they've said or done. Um, and it's actually not, our and our reaction to them is not necessarily based on their behavior. It's based on another person's behavior that's really close to us. So this relationship is reminding us of another relationship. And that other relationship we haven't processed or evolved. Does that make sense?
2: Totally. I felt that
0: today.
1: Yeah. So like one of my clients at the moment, his his boss, the CE, is reminding him of his dad. Ouch. And that's hard, right? And he was reacting a lot to, to his boss for a while and then we kind of repacked it all and worked out, well, what's your stuff, what's his stuff, and, and what's what's from the past? Like, what from the past are you bringing into the future or to, and into the current space? Um, and then counter is when we then trigger them. So they've, we've been triggered by them, by their behaviour, and then our behaviour triggers them because then our behavior is reminding them of someone else that they've got a relationship with and this happens in the workplace every single day and people are completely blind to it um, but it happens in our personal life too we often will attract similar types of relationships based on our attachment styles from when we were little and we play out these relationships with our families and friends um so, yeah, it's, it gets really complex to set boundaries, but my point is is it's important to own your shit. <laughs> like you got to know where this is coming from, right? And what can help is um getting an A4 piece of paper out and you map out the dynamic that's taking place, right? So you get really objective about it. And so you put at the top what's the trigger behaviour or event that's, you know, that we think is making us feel a certain way, but it's not the trigger event. It's our beliefs about the event that is triggering us. So you write down the event and then you might write down, down, well, what are the automatic negative thoughts I have when this person behaves like this, for example, right? And we call them ants, automatic negative thoughts. And then what, how do we behave? How do we feel? And what happens in our body? So what's a physiological reaction to this? And then what's the consequence of this cycle? And then what reinforces this dysfunctional cycle that we've got with someone um, and just getting it out on paper. I do it with all my coaching clients and we might do it for work situations, but every single client will go back and say, I actually mapped this out with my partner. <laughs> like there's something that I get triggered in from them all the time. And I've like mapped it out and it makes sense. And then you work out, well, what's one or two things I could change about my thinking or behavior to change the dynamic? Um so that can, that's another strategy that can help too.
2: Without knowing that strategy, I've been thinking about it. I've been really been focused on that self accountability around my feelings and how I've been feeling Yeah. and, and it's starting to become a bit autonomous when it, when, when the situations arise. So this morning I wasn't feeling well, but my partner had a deadline for something yeah. and she was working on it. She was awfully quiet, focused on that. And it was triggering me. I'm like, what are you upset with me for? Yeah. And she's like, I'm just focusing on my work. I'm like, but you're upset. I can feel that you're upset. I'm sick and I'm not feeling well. And in that moment, I felt like, what, what's going on? Why is, what, why is that triggering me? And it yeah. reminded me of my mom. Yeah. Because that was her strategy. So yeah. Every time my mom was upset.
1: Yes. She withdraws. You got not talk.
0: silent treatment. Mm. I literally read about that last week. Silent treatment actually can really stick with you for years.
1: Mm-hmm. It can, yeah. And it's great that you're aware of that. You know, that you're noticing that pattern in yourself and how you respond. And so that's a great example of, of, um, transference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Owning your shit.
1: Yeah. So important. And most people just go about their day blaming others for how they feel every day. And, and when you're in HR in a business, I mean, you hear about every squabble, every disagreement, you know, people come to you or your team to talk through disagreements and, I just think so many of our issues within the workplace would be resolved if we could do some basic psycho, we call it psychoeducation. And how do you simplify the cognitive behavioural theory and, and help people understand that they're not their feelings, their feelings are a reaction to the way they think and what are strategies to manage your emotions, to express them. I mean, they teach this to kids now in kindy and at school.
2: It's amazing.
1: And, but, but, you know, us, you know, 20, 30, 40 plus, you know, we have to learn it either through study or therapy or just through reading, you know, reading um, psychology books. So
0: So what's interesting about this concept, transference and what is it really reminding you of? I'm wondering if it doesn't necessarily happen between two people. So, and if there's a relation between that and maybe addictive behavior and we'll look at phones which is the biggest problem we have today and i heard this on a podcast yesterday by a guy called ne Nir, um i think i get his name right and he was saying most of the addictions we have today including social media including netflix it's just because people are not willing to deal with their internal discomfort
1: it's true yeah it's true there's a quote I posted it actually on LinkedIn last week. There's a quote from a philosopher from the 1600s who said, humanity's greatest challenge is our inability to sit with ourselves in a room alone. And it's, I mean, that was, he wrote that in the 1600s. Think about how different life was then. But yeah, people can't sit with themselves. They find it really hard. And And we weren't taught those skills often in our family or at school and they're teaching kids those skills now. Which is amazing, um, but for, for those of us that weren't, yeah, we we have this disconnect. We want to distract ourselves, so we fill it with doing, achieving, looking at our phones, yeah.
0: Bradshaw sure has actually written a book called Indistractable, yeah, which talks about very similar strategies that you just mentioned. Yeah. It's very interesting.
2: Yeah. How do you how do you stay mindful? You like
1: I meditate every day. If I had to mandate one thing in the world for everyone to do, it would be that, to spend 10 minutes a day meditating. There's so much research that tells us the value in it. I mean, I used to do it when I was little, um, you know, in my family, and it wasn't popularized then. Um, But it, it calms down, you know, it calms down our body. It activates our parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest, recharge, doesn't it? Gets us out of fight and flight. Um, exercise regularly, do yoga every morning. Um, and yeah, I still do affirmations and I visualize a lot about what I might want to create in my life. So I spend time every day to think about positive thoughts about the future and what I want to, um, feel and do. Um, And it's always backed up with actions as well. So the research tells us, you know, we can't just visualise and it doesn't just happen that way. We need to think about what we want for the future and then actually build small steps towards that.
2: That visualisation does help, though, to act in a certain way, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. I do it in the shower every morning because we shower every day. Well, hopefully most people shower every day. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners take note. (laughs) Shower every day. (laughs) But, you know, when we're implementing new habits, then the way if we can bolt it onto an existing habit that's really well established, the better. So you can meditate or visualize in the shower. Most of us are in the shower for five minutes, maybe 10. Sorry.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You talked about habits quite a few times. Mm -hmm. How does one create good habits that sees them to get, to get, Be who they want to be.
1: Yeah. I think starting small was really important. Yeah. So like the work I do with my clients, most of the senior people I coach don't have any time to themselves, Mm. can't sit with themselves, um, don't tend to meditate, you know, and anything that you do in that space, you need to start really small every day. Start with like if you're going to introduce a meditation habit, start with two minutes every day and just build it over time. It becomes addictive, trust me. (laughs) Um, I can relate. (laughs) um, But I think the biggest mistake people make when they're trying to change is they try to change too much about themselves at once. And James Clear, you know, he's written a great book about that, isn't it, in Atomic Habits, about how to – it's all research-based about how to um, make small changes, get 1% better every day. Mm.
0: I think the visualisation aspect, something I – Always did maybe as a kid growing up, and then I lost it for a while. I think it was the same time when I met Ali. I think Ali was getting right into it, and he said, No, no, you should give it, you should really give it a go. And the moment I started doing it, I just immediately established this very strong connection. That right now, there is no way I would go to any significant event or attend any significant event or do anything major, a presentation, a conference, without visualizing the whole scene everything, even the people I want to meet, mm-hmm. everyone. You know, shaking hands with the right people, being on stage, presenting, speaking, the whole lot. The feeling afterwards,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, um I wish there was more awareness, maybe especially back on the wagon of executives and leadership. If you're not spending much time on your own and you're comfortable being with a comfortable spending time just with yourself. Mm-hmm. That this is actually affecting your performance and affecting the performance of the organisation.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Because the relationship we have with ourselves is the most important relationship we'll ever have in our life. And again, we're not really taught skills on how to do that. We're not. We're not taught that at school, or you know, we weren't. Again, they're doing it now. But yeah, it's so important. If you can't sit with yourself and and recognise how you feel at times. If you can't understand your cognitive and behavioural patterns and how they link together, how your unhelpful thinking then impacts your behaviour. If you can't understand what triggers you, what really presses your buttons at work, if you can't make sense of that, then you're acting on autopilot, which means you're behaving in the same way repeatedly over and over again. And and that's just a recipe for disaster long term because you're not – changing your thinking and you're using the same strategies repeatedly and Mm. you can't like we all we always need to constantly rebuild our repertoire of of influencing strategies and just ways of being particularly at work like to, to stay current and if you are someone out there who's ambitious you know you need to deeply know yourself really well and that comes from sitting with ourselves and, and maybe working with a coach. Or again, I'm a big advocate for therapy. I've done a lot of therapy myself over the years. So get to know yourself and develop that strong relationship with yourself.
2: Amazing. Rebecca, we have a an ending tradition to the podcast. Oh, yeah. previous guest yes. has left your question. Yeah. Emmy is going to play it.
0: The memory is, a, it was a very fun one.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: If you were an animal, what would you be and why? Oh, that is a fun one. What would I be? Do you know the first thing that that comes to mind is a galah, <laughs> and why I'd be a galah because they're bright pink. I love bright. I quite like bright colours, but also they can travel far distances, so they can fly above everyone, and because I love travel, and I think. It allows me to see everyone living their life in a different way. And I think that kind of goes back to one of the things that I got from when I was a kid was that there are so many different ways to live life and I think we should celebrate that, celebrate the differences in people. And I think a galah gets to see so many different ways. (laughs) Amazing.
0: I love that. I just want to add, you mentioned that at the very beginning and at the end, celebrating the differences in people. Mm. And for both Ali and I, we both grew up overseas and moved to Australia. And I think, to be very honest with you, I don't think we do enough of that in Australia more broadly. Mm. Um, not on the community level, not even in the corporate space. But there has been a lot of research done on actually the, the level of contribution you get, you know, from hiring people. I'd say, from different cultures and different backgrounds. Absolutely. You know, just the intellectual diversity you bring into the team coming from different cultures. Yes. But we've got that just built-in bias Mm -hmm. to hire people that just, you know, live around us and look like us, maybe sound like us or we're friends with. Yes. Any final thoughts on that? What can the leaders of today or executives today who actually do have.
1: I think it's, I think that influence. Yeah. I think it's a really good point. I think that we need to look for people that are different to us because they bring a different way of thinking, as you said, and diversity of thought really supports an organization. Like even just from a business sense, forgetting about, you know, being inclusive is the right thing to do anyway, um, from a business perspective, there's so much research that shows us that, you know, diverse boards and executive teams. Um, because they bring various ways of thinking, you know, they add so much more value to the organisation and there's, you know, bigger profit margins. But again, it's not just about the money. It's about that, you know, there's so many different ways of seeing the world and it's really important that we include that, Um, you know, and we can have diverse teams, but maybe we're not inclusive. So, um, and yeah, I think we've got so much more to do in that space. I, I think, from a gender perspective. So I guess I can relate to being a minority from being a woman at the top. Um, I'm a white woman of privilege, so I still was, I have a lot of privilege around me. Um, you know, I'm educated, so I, I've had a fortunate position, but I've been in male-dominated sectors where I was the only woman at the table. And, yeah, it's hard, like, having a difference pointed out all the time or not having your view valued because you're not like everyone else. Um, it's tough. And, and those that have multiple levels of diversity, you know, then face bigger challenges. So, yeah, I just think we need to get much better at it. Definitely. And there are some sectors like government are doing much better, you know, compared to um, some of the other private sectors, much more inclusive. They're meant to represent the community. And, and, you know, they they have much higher levels of diversity compared to private sector, but we still have so much work to do. And I'm And I'm sorry that your experience at time hasn't been um, inclusive here. I just, I have hope that we're on a journey and we'll make some, you know, some more progress much more quickly than what's happening now.
2: Rebecca, it's been a pleasure. I personally wish we could talk a bit more because I I feel like we just explored the iceberg of your knowledge (laughs) and the depth of your understanding of insights. And nevertheless, thank you so much for your time. I've so totally
1: enjoyed it. No problems. And you're most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved this conversation. And, yeah, I love both of your curiosity about understanding people and getting below the surface. So it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> thank you for listening. I'm sure this episode has really resonated with you, but we'd love to know which part. We would love to get your feedback, so please do reach out to us via our website, or any of our social media platforms. You can find these through any of the links attached to this episode.